Bibles or your devices, that'd be great, or on the inserts. I, couldn't, I can't fit a lot of these uh, passages on the insert. You may have been noticing this, but I get the main point of it or the gist uh, on that uh, insert inside your worship folders usually, uh, but they're long enough narratives where I can almost always not get it all in. So you, you might be better along, following along on screen or in your Bibles or phones. Uh, that, would be, that would be great. Um, so we're in Genesis right now. Genesis, if you're new to the Bible or to our series, means beginnings. So uh, it's appropriate being the first book of the Bible, the first book of the Old Testament. And it's uh, basically God's way of talking about theological beginnings and historical beginnings. Uh, when he made the world, and as uh, Peter kind of described and recapped how sin came into the world and how Adam and Eve, the first humans, or those kind of representative heads of the human race, uh, grabbed for that fruit they weren't supposed to. But it wasn't just the grabbing, it was the, the rebelling against God. And that's important to understand as we read Genesis, read the whole Bible really, but as we read today's passage, we're going to see this play out through a man named Esau, and we'll get to him. But it's the same kind of idea. It, it is rejecting God. It's rejecting his sufficiency. It's placing ourselves on the throne of the universe and taking him off. That's, that's the core element of sin. It's back in Genesis 3. That's the, it sets up the whole drama. It sets up, it sets up why things are so cursed and fallen, how, why we're so exiled from God, and, and it also defines the remedy. So when we get to the remedy of Christ, when we get to the many remedies of the Old Testament and the, the ultimate remedy of Christ in the New Testament, which all of the many remedies point to, uh, it helps define that as well. And so Jesus is is then not just saving us from our sins, but he's saving us from rebellion. He's saving us from rebellion against God and from wanderings and from going our own way and, um, and from self-deification. So uh, as we get past all that, though, I, I, you know, most of this book, and a lot of you guys are aware of this, you've been here. You may have just been here for the first time today, but you've read this and you might be familiar. But uh, most of the book is actually stories about a family. So once we get past these early stories of creation and fall, and sin and death entering the world, and kind of this more cosmic look at how everything kind of falls away from God, and, and there's, there's stories of floods, and, uh, and buildings of towers that are rebellions against God as well, and, and the different kind of global genealogies that describe things. Once we get past that, most of the book is a story about a family who's headed by Abraham, and we're now in uh, these stories of his son Isaac, and then his twin sons today, Jacob and Esau, we're going to kind of fill up a good chunk of the middle portions of this book. So the next few weeks we'll be looking at, at them. Today Esau, though, uh, in, in particular. But just to summarize, uh, one, one thing I do want to highlight here, because it's going to be important for um, today and also future sermons, is, is this idea. Actually, did I not put it in here? Let me just look here. No, I didn't. Okay, well, I'll just say it then. Uh, Genesis is, in terms of one way to understand it, there are a lot of things going on in Genesis, but um, we've been saying this in so many words. Genesis is a book of genealogical patterns of theological resemblance. And I'll explain this, but Genesis is a book of genealogical patterns of theological resemblance. So when Abraham's talked about these early individuals that God shows grace to and covenants with, we've talked about how they're pictures of us as sinners being called by grace sort of paradigmatic of salvation, but they're also images of Christ because this is actually Jesus' uh, ancestry. This is Jesus' bloodline. It's Jesus' family. And so when we talk about theological resemblance, then these are actually the early stories of Christ. And that's the connection that the, the New Testament makes that we've been making, whether it's explicit or implicit. There are things that Abraham does or Isaac or uh, there's just New Testament realities, too. It's not just a picture of Christ all the time, but there are New Testament realities that get more clear 
later in the Bible that, that start in motion here back in Genesis. And so we're going to connect some more of those dots today as we look at um, this, this story of Esau. Not so much as a picture of Christ, but a picture of a New Testament reality of receiving grace and then rejecting it. Uh, it, it what starts today, and I, I can't overemphasize this, it starts in motion a major motif in the Bible of God being extremely generous, people kind of tasting it, then rejecting it. Walking alongside it for a short season, then walking away from it. Kind of ingesting for a little bit, but then spitting it out of their mouth. Esau is this early pattern as an individual. Uh, it's a good chunk of the nation of Israel later in the Old Testament that kind of serves as a, as a bad example here as well, that, um, that it's later in the Old Testament, and then it, it speeds right ahead into the New, uh, New Testament too, and it becomes a warning for New Testament Christians. And I'll, I'll recap that because it's so important. We'll get, we'll get to that. Well, let's read uh, Genesis 25, 19 to 34. Um, we're going to see Abraham mentioned here and Isaac as well, but uh, remember Esau and Jacob are these twins of Isaac that are grandsons of Abraham, and um, they are talked about as being, and we'll come back to this story here actually in a couple of weeks uh, to put an end cap on it, but there's some things up front that are super important theologically we're going to look at today. So verse 19, start there, and we'll read through, uh, we'll read through verse 34 and wrap up verse, or chapter 25 rather uh, today. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. All right, so uh, what I want to start with here is just a quick aside uh, before we get into the main part of this today, um, and it's a bit of a recap. So if, you're, if you've been here for this series, you've known this, you've seen this pattern come up, and that is the pattern of barrenness. Um, so maybe when you saw this, you remembered, but um, Abraham earlier uh, prayed for his wife Sarah as well, and, so, and we just saw Sarah being barren, and now we have this next generation of barrenness too, uh, that God eventually uh, remedies. He, he actually grants the prayer of Isaac. It's actually a really cool picture of 
husband really praying, laboring in prayer for his wife and, and God answering, um, answering that prayer. But um, one thing I want to just highlight here, though, too, is not so much to talk about the theme of barrenness. That's a big theme in the Bible, and it's actually not a cursed thing. It's something that God actually looks upon as a favored thing, strangely enough. It might not seem that way, uh, but it is. It's something God delights in working through and eventually remedying so that it might be clear that it's his power and his grace that makes life come from non-life. It's, it's one of these early images of grace that we get in the Bible, pattern-wise, repetition-wise, is that in the line of Jesus is this pattern of barren women who all of a sudden miraculously conceive. And this, this pattern finds its goal in Mary in the New Testament, who's not just barren, uh, actually she's, she's more than that, she's a virgin. God overcomes virginity to bring Jesus into the world, to again show us that his plan of redemption has to do with his power, not ours. It's not our ability, it's God's. And so we've been talking about that. But the the bigger thing I want you to see here, and maybe you saw this, you can do some quick math in the, uh, in the passage in verse 20 and 26. It says, Isaac was 40, year old, 40 years old when he married Rebekah, and he was 60 when the twins were born. So that means Rebekah was barren for 20 years, and Isaac was laboring in prayer for a very long time for his wife. And so uh, the theme we get here that started, it's not called this, but it, it is this, is uh, waiting on God, a major, major Christian traits. And we're using Christian here. Uh, this, these aren't called Christians, but they're these early people of God. And we see it kind of just plow right through the Old Testament all the way to the New. It's all over the place. Waiting on God is this major people of God trait and, and calling. And I want to mention it because I know a lot of you guys are waiting on God, or if you're not, you will for things. You're praying for things, and he's not answering and if he will answer in the way that you're asking, which isn't always a guarantee because we don't always know what we need best, but if he does, sometimes he waits for years. And then in this case, it's decades. This is a long time to go through. Some of you guys have actually gone through this. You've been infertile for years, but then you've, you've been able to overcome that or you're still waiting for that. So you're in different places. Um, but I want us just to, med- just to stop here and see this because this is, um, it's not a small thing. God, God does this all the time. He makes promises and then he calls people to wait for their fulfillment. Israel waited for Christ and the world with them. We wait as, as Christians for the second coming. That's a part of our life. It's a huge part of the Christian experience. So um, if you're waiting for God now, or if you will, uh, you, are, you are joining with the throngs of people throughout biblical history who have had problems, have had issues, who have wanted to be close to God, who have waited and prayed and waited and then god has asked them to to wait a a little bit longer until he is until he is answered and it could be about a small thing like infertility but really as we've been saying as we kind of linked this earlier barrenness and overcoming that's a picture of salvation so really what this is about is about waiting for god to deliver waiting for him to come into the world to save it's kind of this strange mix between an active command to wait uh, and being very passive. It's, it's actually a gospel idea because uh, if you think about it, when God says wait, we're not really doing anything, right? We're sitting, or maybe we're not actually sitting, but we're in this place of waiting for him to do it because we can't. And so a lot of times, like in the prophets or elsewhere in the Bible, you see, you see God say, uh, wait for me. It never says God waits for us to be great. It never says God waits for us to show up or to deliver or to fight better or to clean ourselves up. It never says God waits for us, but rather we should wait for God. 
And so it's going to be a huge pattern, and God, I think, will bring that physically into our life in smaller ways to kind of undergird and be an undercurrent of this greater idea that we wait for salvation, because God brings it into the world through his Son. And that's partly why we go through centuries of time between when God promises Christ and brings Christ, is so that humanity is brought to the end of themselves, and they're, they're in this pattern, this rhythm, nationally and individually, and in the New Testament as a church, of just praying and waiting and so that we might not be mistaken that God delivers and it's not up to people. It's not our works that save, but God's grace. So waiting, though very difficult, is a really prized thing biblically. And if you're waiting, and if you're, and we don't always wait well, but let's just presuppose if we're in a place by God's grace of waiting well, you are a child of God. You are like Rebecca and Isaac. You are like the others in the Old Testament who waited for the, the fulfillment of the promise. You were like the nations who caught a glimpse of what God is doing through Israel and said, there's something going on there. Uh, you're like the church, the true church, who's not trying to turn God's head, but waiting for him to do absolutely everything. That's what it means to be a person of God. We're good waiters. And when we're bad waiters, he forgives us. And then his spirit prompts us to wait, um, to wait all the more. So... All right, that's an aside. <laughs> Had to be said. Uh, we're going to move on now to the meat of this uh, to uh, talk about the relationship kind of between Esau and Jacob, though we'll put an end cap on that in a couple of weeks. What I want to do is kind of summarize this story, and I'm saying here, apply a biblical theological filter to the story for the sake of clarity, uh, meaning what's going on here and then what's going on here symbolically. And then we'll talk about how the New Testament uh, reads this story as well, because it's really odd, right? It's one of the, I, I at least think it's a little bit subjective, but I think this is one of the stranger stories in the whole of Genesis. And it gets weirder. It's going to get, it, there's an end cap, like I said, where it all, what begins here kind of ends in a couple of weeks, and it gets very strange. Uh, but even here, it's, it's, um, it's quite odd with the pregnancy and, and uh, what happens with Esau here. And everything. So basically what's going on, just to recap this, if this is a new story to you especially, uh, is Rebecca conceives twins and they wrestle in her womb. Esau is born first. He's born red and hairy and becomes an outdoorsman. His name Esau, Edom, uh, it sounds like the Hebrew for red and so forth. And so the nation that comes from him is called Edom, but here Esau. And Jacob is born second, holding Esau's heel and becomes a quiet, quiet tent dweller. And so once then, at the end of the story, the key part when Jacob was cooking, Esau comes in hungry from the fields, from hunting, and Jacob convinces him to give up his birthright as a firstborn, so his inheritance, for the stew. And Esau agrees pretty much immediately. He says, well, what, what good is my inheritance if I die now? So very dramatic, right? He's not going to die if he doesn't have stew, but he very dramatically and emotionally makes this decision on a whim. And it says thus, it's a really interesting, you know, kind of end cap in its own right to today's passage. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And so it's interpretive help there. So if we don't really know kind of, well, what's going on here? It helps us. What's going on is Esau is despising his inheritance. He's despising the grace shown to him. He didn't do anything to be a firstborn. That was God's grace. He was just born first. He was given an amazing gift, but he despised that gift for the sake of Binti Moore Beach Stew, or just a bowl of it. So, so we'll talk more about this tension between the two and 
you know, and the ultimate outcome of this deal over stew in coming weeks. But, you know, for today, I, I want to focus on this latter part about uh, what Esau is doing here and what this image is. And so as we apply the, the biblical theological filter to the story, uh, really important here, and I've kind of been hinting at it, came up pretty clear last week, it's been coming up a lot, is that inheritance and birthright and blessing, as we talk about genealogy, early in the Bible, that's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of uh, the blessing of God. So when we talk about inheritance, we talk about it as a gift, we talk about it as a genealogical connection to Christ, uh, when we talk about Abraham, Isaac, and then uh, eventually Jacob here, once he gets the birthright from, from Esau. But for, at first, it's actually Esau's birthright. You know, if Esau doesn't do this, Esau's the one that Christ is going to come through, uh, you could say. Or he's going to be the one, the chosen firstborn here, to receive this, this inheritance. And so if you, if you do this kind of symbolic or biblical theological math on the top, in, then on the bottom in yellow here, what the story is, is the Esau story is a picture of someone rejecting, older or New Testament, but I'll use New Testament terms here. It's a picture of someone rejecting salvation or the grace of Christ, the inheritance of, of the grace of Christ for the sake of worldly pleasures. In uh, Hebrews 12, you know what? I think I have the wrong reference here. I'm pretty sure that's Hebrews 12, not Hebrews 9. <laughs> so just disregard that and just know it's Hebrews 12. Or just follow along. It doesn't really matter. So in Hebrews 12, uh, 14 to 17, uh, this link is made. So I want to make this our main text for today. Uh, in terms of how Esau is used here. This is a New Testament letter written to New Testament Christians. Have that in mind. The, the way he theologizes about Esau here uh, makes it instantly practical and relevant for us. It's a direct link. It's not just a story. It's theological history that is matters. It has New Testament imagery that, um, that matters to us. And there's a huge, huge warning here for Christians. And so actually, if you're not a Christian today, you can kind of let that warning pass over you and just uh, hear the grace of Christ kind of at face value and receive Jesus. That's my invitation to you. If you're a Christian who has tasted grace, uh, there's a huge warning here to not be like Esau. Uh, it's extremely important. Uh, it's full of, it's, 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 the New Testament's full of it, as well as the old, as we're seeing here. So let's read uh, the, the, kind of the main four verses of this section. I'm leaving a couple out uh, here, but this is the gist. Uh, verses 14 to 17. Pursue peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and through it many become defiled. See to it that no one becomes like Esau, an immoral and godless person who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that the latter, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought the blessing with tears. Let's go back here and walk through this. A couple of things just at the outright uh, to mention, uh, kind of in passing, but they're important. So it starts here, kind of the flow of the argument begins with saying to Christians, pursue peace with everyone, especially the church. This is written to Christians, remember. So if you're not at peace with someone in the church, remember that God has worked out peace with you through his son. He died for peace. So be at peace with others uh, in the context of the church, but also outside as well. Then he says, this is an amazing phrase, I love this. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. 
wonderful uh, kind of turn of phrase there. And it's curious, too, because of the way he's talking about obtaining, but also obtaining something that's not really obtainable uh, by work. It's kind of like he's saying, see to it, church, that no one fails to obtain what can't be obtained with work. See to it that you obtain the fact that Jesus died for your sins and you had nothing to do with it. Obtain it. It doesn't say here, see to it that every Christian obtains the Ten Commandments. See to it that every Christian uh, works them out very well in their life. It says, see to it that every Christian obtains the grace of God in the end, that they finish their race. Obtaining grace. And so really, uh, before we move on here, because Esau is going to flush this out uh, in a second, the story of Esau and what this, what this means. But before we even get there, it's just a great question to ask ourselves. This is written to you guys and to me. If you ask yourself, what should I be doing on a daily basis as a Christian, this should be right up there at the top. Helping, and I'll speak to people who are calling this home. Are you helping people at Hiawatha Church obtain grace? and to understand it better. If not, put yourself in a position where you are and be helped yourself, beyond the receiving end and the giving end. This is not written to Christian leaders alone. This is the whole church. Partly what we should be doing on a regular basis is helping people to run the race of grace, to get over themselves, to obtain the fact that God had to die on a cross for our sins for us to be saved. And this becomes very important. When we get to Esau, Esau is a picture of someone who rejects that idea. In its early infantile stage, so Esau is not thinking of Jesus of Nazareth because he's not on the scene yet, but he is rejecting what Jesus ends up fulfilling, which is the grace of God, the inheritance of salvation, the blessing of being a child, the firstborn of God, which is what Jesus is called and what the church is called, the firstborn, this inheritance idea in the New Testament. And so that's what he says here at, at the bottom. See to it, not only that on the top here, so two see to it, right? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, then he flushes this out. Again, see to it that no one becomes like Esau, an immoral and godless person who sold his birthright for a single meal, for a bowl of stew. You know that the latter, Esau, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, we're going to read about this portion of the story in a couple of weeks, but later he wants to inherit the blessing. He realizes his mistake. He was rejected, and Jacob gets it. He gets the birthright. For he found no chance to repent, even though he sought the blessing with tears. So see to it, Christians, that no one becomes like Esau, who sold his birthright, and later when he realized his mistake, it was too late, and he found, it's an interesting uh, phrase here because this is not used in Genesis 25, but he says kind of in, in conversion terms or spiritual New Testament terms, he found no chance to repent, no chance to turn again and kind of reconvert. That's kind of what's happening here spiritually, metaphorically, and analogously in Genesis 25. He found no chance to do it, even though he sought it with tears. That's what he does at the end of the story. He says, I made a mistake. The stew was a stupid idea. And, and as Isaac is in the act of blessing Jacob, he says, Dad, what are you doing? I'm your firstborn. Let me have my birthright back. And he's begging for it with tears, but he doesn't get it. And so, again, what this is a picture of is someone tasting grace, rejecting, and never finding the time in life to fully repent of that and be saved in the end. The Bible calls this 
apostasy, it's a, it, which is a couple of Greek words meaning falling away from where we formerly were or rebelling. And so, uh, again, this, this, what this is imaging spiritually is a picture of a, a person, a Christian, or almost a Christian, however you want to understand that, very much associated with salvation, beginning to believe it, understanding it, putting some degree of trust in it, but then not going all in and eventually throwing it away for the sake of other pleasures in life. So again, it's a picture of a believer apostatizing. It's a willful rejection of grace. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time is talk about this more specifically because in Genesis 25, it's stew and ideas like inheritance and birthright, which can be kind of enigmatic. So what does this really mean? When Hebrews is picking up on this theme, what, what, is it, what does that really look like? How does that materialize in the Christian life? What are the threats? What are the temptations that lure us away and that actually do lead many away from the faith who kind of thought they were in but eventually did not finish? So a couple of um, a, uh, disclaimers here before we get into this, and I, this is sort of a what does this not mean kind of moment, and this, this is like another sermon, but still want to say it. Um, this is not, well, we're not, we talk about apostasy and rejecting the stew, and you know, this is not a struggle with sin idea alone. It can lead to it, but this is not, oh, I'm struggling with sin, am I, am I eating the stew? No, it's not, not what this is about. Nor is it about doubt, uh, but it's a formal rejecting of Jesus Christ and him crucified as the only way to be saved. After formerly believing it, or at least kind of, in, in part. And so it kind of leads this idea of, can we lose our salvation? Just a quick comment on that. Uh, it's a loaded idea, and if this isn't scratching your itch with this issue, uh, please talk to me or Spencer. Someone, we'd love to talk to you more about this, but um, just a quick comment. We cannot lose our salvation if we're truly saved to begin with, but the Bible says we can show that we're never, we never truly believed in the, the gospel in the first place by not persevering in it. One place you see this play out is uh, 1 John 2.19, a New Testament letter, uh, talking about antichrists or just non-Christians, but look at the way it's worded. Antichrists went out from us, the church, they were inside a church community, and they went out. They left. But they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So not finishing the race of faith shows that we were never in in the first place. You see that? If they were of us, they would have continued with us, but they didn't continue in the faith. They didn't keep believing the gospel all their days. They ate the stew. They rejected grace. They turned to a different worldview and theology of God that isn't a theology of God after all, a different kind of gospel. And by doing that, they showed they never, they never were in in the, first, in the first place whatsoever. So you can't lose what you've been given. And yet there's this call in the Bible to keep persevering and believing the gospel keep taking in and breathing in the air of grace through the context of the church all our days and show that it's actually precious to us by continuing to partake of it. And then we show that we're actually a child of God. All right. With this said, though, um, it's just one kind of going back to Esau and the question, what does it look like to eat the stew of apostasy uh, today? Um, you know, first of all, kind of a broad comment 
uh, and I, I guess I mentioned this, but um, the, the sad reality is this happens all the time, all over the world. Uh, you know, way back here in Genesis, we're getting a glimpse here, but it's a pattern. And like I said, it, it, it's in Israel, in the Old Testament, it's in the church, in the New Testament. Right up to today and right into this very room. And I don't mean to kind of needlessly strike fear into your heart here. I, I, I'm just trying to say it. I'm not being passive-aggressive by saying, oh, so-and-so is here, so I better say it this way. Uh, the point is, we all can be tempted at this end. We're not immune. Esau is not that different from you and me. If, if, you, if you start that way, if Esau is kind of in this category of sort of touchability as it comes to apostasy, like he was especially prone, this will mean absolutely nothing to you. Promise. But if he is a person like you, if he's a sinner like you and me, all of a sudden it's, it's the world. And this is what Hebrews is presupposing, right? Otherwise, why, why would you link Esau with Christians, the church? And so this is the theme. God's grace is beautiful. It saves, but it's also rejected by some. And Hebrews is kind of, if you guys know Hebrews, it's set up this way. It's a book of warnings. Uh, it's a beautiful biblical theology of the whole Old Testament, and there's so much grace and beauty, but a lot of stern warnings about not just Esau, but other individuals in the Old Testament who kind of tasted grace and didn't finish. And, and the book is saying, in the New Testament, learn from those examples, those images of salvific reality ahead of time, and don't be like these, you know, whether it's all of Israel or whether it's a person like Esau or something like that. Uh, learn from them and don't be like them, but rather finish the race of faith yourself by believing in Jesus alone for the rest of your life and not yourself or other religions or other theologies or other things. So the spin I want to take here, though, um, and there's lots of things I think you could say, but I want to just allow Genesis 25 to speak a bit and ask the question, what is stew meaning there? And I think when you ask that question, it's comfort. You know, Esau was hungry. He wanted temporal comfort and wasn't having the big picture in mind. And so what I want to do, the, the angle I want to take, and I'll take it on kind of two levels, is look at how does comfort threaten the Christian? And we'll look at it physically and theologically. And they relate, but two different angles. Physical comforts and theological comforts. And by that, I'm just going to mean uh, bad theologies that are kind of easier to swallow uh, that lead us away from grace as well. So... Physical comforts and theological comforts that lead us away from grace. And I actually asked some of our leaders at the church this week to chime in here. I'm not going to quote them directly, but just so you know, this is kind of a list that was gathered this week from a number of leaders from our church and myself, and I'll weave in some scripture here so you see how this is talked directly about in the Old and, and the, new, um, the New Testament. So, so on the physical side, first, this is... Um, the, the physical side has to do with things like, uh, you know, sex and money and other worldly pleasures. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reading through um, the, uh, the book of, uh, well, the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings in the Old Testament right now myself. And if you don't know what those books are about, uh, you kind of get from the title, but they're about the kings of Israel and their rise and fall and uh, how some are kind of chosen and covenanted with by God and some are rejected and... Um, even the good ones fall, and, and there's this point uh, a couple of times, actually a lot of times, in the book where intermarriage, so we're talking about just the idea of sexual sin here now, how it's linked 
with apostasy. Uh, and so God actually says to Israel, don't intermarry with other women from other countries because, not because that in and of itself would be a bad thing, but because they will lead you away from me. That's the ultimate warning. And you see it uh, time and time again, how these, you know, these kings, they're actually ruling quite well, and they're, they're quite close to God, and they're doing the right thing, but then they marry this one individual who leads them away to worship other gods. And they are linked. And I, I, some of you might not know this yet, but you will in life, uh, whether it's, I hope it's not you directly, I hope it's just someone else you know, um, but you will see this pattern. And I've seen it a lot, uh, sadly, with uh, friends, congregants, just hearing about this, is the, the idea of, it's not just sexual sin, it's a, it's a type of centering of sex, valuing of sex, and, and intermarrying in the way of, of like a Christian marrying a non-Christian or something that actually leads them away from God and how the two are linked. Um, you know, so, so rejecting the faith is linked with this idea of I really want to have sex with this woman. I really want to go that road. I know it's probably not right, but it just feels right. So I'm also going to reject this greater narrative of a God who says it's wrong for his reasons, and we'll go into all that today. But going that road um, is linked up with, and again, you see this in First, first Second Kings, in the Old Testament, you see it in the New, and you see it by experience that, um, that, this, that that's the road that people, that people take. And so that, that's the first thing I want to mention, and I, and I, again, we talk about apostasy here today, guys. I want to make it very clear. This is not a struggle with sin. This is not, oh man, I, I can't get over this pornographic addiction. That's a big deal. Uh, and God does give us victory there, and it should be addressed, and it is sin. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about a, a change of heart. A complete change of heart away from the living God, away from his offer of salvation, to cherishing other things so much that we formally reject this thing we used to cherish more. You guys see the difference? Not a wrestling with doubt, not a struggling with sin, though that's obviously important in its own right, this is, a, this is about the heart and actually leaving God. And, and I've seen this multiple times. A lot of you guys probably have. Maybe you feel like you're in it. Um, it doesn't mean like a Christian, when, when he or she marries a non-Christian, can not maintain faith, but it's pretty rare. Uh, it's, it's not seen uh, that, that often. So, so there's, that, there, there's that issue. There's and actually a couple of passages here that go a bigger picture. This is the Apostle Paul speaking in 2 Timothy. He says, uh, just about a guy. And this is, it's interesting, these letters are just written about real people. Um, and look at, look at him. It says, For Demas, in love with this present world, deserted me, and he went to Thessalonica. Mark, uh, Mark uh, 4, 18 to 19, this is Jesus speaking about casting seeds of the gospel, and some receive it and some don't, but they're different soil types. And so he says, uh, Others are those sown among the thorns. Uh, these are the ones who hear the gospel, but the cares of the world, the lure of wealth, the desire for other things, come in and choke the word, and it yields nothing. And then 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, this is the apostasy, look at what it says here, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So specifically here, the love of money is linked up, the physical stew here idea is linked up with actually wandering away. So again, 
Money itself's not evil. The love of money is. It leads to all kinds of it. And it actually can lead us away from Jesus if we're not careful. So that's, that's what he's saying. Paul's saying, I've seen this happen. Maybe some of you have seen that happen, sadly, in others' lives. And it will occur. You can't serve two masters, uh, money or, or God. And Jesus says that in, in Matthew. To love money leads to all that evil, that apostasy. And, and it leads us to focus on ourselves. That's where I think the opposite of, you know, the where it really gets bad is, is we focus on money and it becomes a focus on the self, building our kingdom, you know, and I've really worked hard for this and so I'm going to hoard and set up my kingdom on earth. It can lead, to, then, then that's not, it's not consistent with grace. It's not a complement theologically to it. It fights against it and it can lead us away from a faith that calls us to put Jesus and grace and other people uh, first. Uh, a couple other things, uh, you know, I, this is just in no particular order, but um, <clears throat> I think the issue uh, today of, and I've seen this a lot too, of, um, and the temptation myself even, is, is putting children above Jesus and church uh, is this type of stew, physical stew as well, that I've seen lead people away from the church, lead people away from God, so that things like soccer practices and Sunday morning sports uh, lead people away from God's people. And in the beginning, it's maybe not sin. It's not, the intent there isn't, oh man, I, I can't wait to lead Jesus. You know, it, it's, that's not the point. The point is eventually uh, their heart grows dull and their children become the center of their universe rather than the discipline of gathering with the people of God to be reminded of the grace that they forget weekly. And when that happens, people uh, end up Leading. This is not conjecture, by the way, to be clear. This is act, all these things have actually happened. I've seen them, many others have, and heard of uh, many as well. The bigger thing here, and I'll just, the physical side will end with this, but if you kind of widen out, um, talking to Spence this morning about this, and he put it this way too, but uh, this is from Acts 20. Uh, Paul the Apostle uses this phrase, I, I, as a Christian, I, I do not account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course, speaking of finishing this race of faith, and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, here it is, of the grace of God. So this is the opposite of eating the stew. You know, someone's saying, my life doesn't matter at all, actually. In light of eternity, compared to the cross, compared to God, compared to the importance of other people being saved from hell, I consider my life of no value. So the opposite, that what it looks like to eat the stew physically is to consider our lives of value. To, and, and so much that we place it above other more important things, uh, spiritually speaking and lifestyle-wise. Theological, the second thing here is, and I'll just summarize, I think um, there are anti-grace or anti-gospel ways of thinking that are, that are more comfortable than the idea of God dying for our sins and that being the only way to be saved. Um, so whether it's, you know, um, thoughts like that can sneak in, like, you know what, I'm not such a bad person, as the scriptures seem to teach, uh, and as my pastor and other Christians seem to, uh, seem to say sometimes, uh, or Jesus died to show me how this is the essence of the gospel, you might, some might think, to show me how to live a more humble life, but that's basically it. Or maybe the, the more comfortable, easily swallowable doctrine is the essence of Christianity is just keeping a lid on my sin 
trying my best and uh, staying out of trouble. Um, now, <clears throat> all these thoughts, are, it's not to say, again, if you entertain these that you're instantly unsaved, you've instantly eaten the stew and you can't go back. It's saying these are the types of kind of anti-gospel or un, untrue, at best half-true, but not really, uh, types of theologies that are a little more easy to swallow. They're less offensive. And they can lead us eventually away from the cross that alone, that alone saves us. So easier to eat intellectually at times is, is kind of the, the idea. You know, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, you know, as Christians, doing good in the world can make us feel better about ourselves. And if we centralize good deeds alone, our, our mission becomes less offensive to people. Like if, you're, if the essence of Christianity to you is doing good, you're never going to offend people, ever. Easy. If your message is the cross, you will be hated. You will be spit on, figuratively or literally. You will be laughed at, and you will suffer. You see the difference? If it's just good, people will love you. And that's not to say Christians shouldn't do good. Just that's not the offensive part. It's easier to swallow. If Jesus just came into the world to teach you how to do good, just eat it up. Easy to eat, easy to swallow. Give me some more of that dinty more. But if it's the cross... If it's God beaten to a bloody pulp on a cross for you, saying, I'm the only way to be saved, do you see the difference? It's, there's comfort in the latter because it's the image of the love of God for us, but it's uncomfortable because it's saying that's the only way. And it strikes at our pride constantly, whether it's ours or, or, our, or our hearers as we evangelize. It takes the focus completely off of us, actually, and puts it on to the man on the cross who had to die for us. Had to die. That's what the gospel says. There's no other way to be saved except God come into the world, become a human being, and be crucified, and die as a substitute for sinners. That's the gospel. That, it's comfortable in one sense because it gives the joy, but it's uncomfortable because it strikes at the pride. It interrupts our life. It, it demands attention rather than accommodates our already fairly clean life. It says, you're a new creation, not just be a better you. It says, everything good that has ever happened to you has been given, not earned. You try telling that to a, a type A, hardworking, pretty successful person, and you'll probably get resistance. And this is why Jesus sees so many more poor people and sinners come to faith than successful, I think I'm pretty good types in the New Testament, right? We talk about this all the time. It's offensive. Not to say working hard and doing good is bad. It's good. It's a gift of God. But if we centralize it, if we, if we think it's from us, it becomes that theological you know, stew of apostasy that can, that can lead, us, lead us away. So whether it's the physical side, you guys, or the, the theological, I, you know, I've been praying that one or more of those would especially hit and resonate Maybe you're thinking, oh man, I got a friend who's really, and you're the one to bring them back. Because these are very slippery slopes, very slippery slopes. Again, not, not just the sin, but it's the, the heart turning away from God through them that, that becomes Esau-like. And, and so through the lens of Hebrews 12, <clears throat> this is the command, obtain grace. 
Reject the stew for the sake of the gracious inheritance. You know, and this is the paradox of the Christian life. The, the Christian life says, um, work really hard at not working. Work really hard at believing that there's nothing you can do to turn God's head except believe in him. Remember, the Bible says, faith is the only thing that pleases God. Trust in him, not performance. So, obtaining looks like resting. It's paradoxical. But that's just, you know, standing in grace strong looks like, and that song was great that Peter did earlier because it kind of hit on those things. Like, you know, being strong looks like weakness in the Christian life. Going to war looks like dying. And so, obtaining grace looks like working really hard at waiting on God. That's what we do as Christians. If we need to get used to that and get in the rhythm of that if we're not already for the first time today or the thousandth, come back to a place of looking at the man on the cross and saying, he died for me, he loves me. And then, <clears throat> and then be aware of Esau's stew. Again, whether it's worldly distractions or theological compromises, comfort always threatens to take the focus off of Jesus and put it on us, off of grace. And um, like Esau, on to, on to works. But I want to make sure you guys are consoled here as well. Um, it's really hard. I was telling the overseers this morning, it's, we talk about apostasy. We believe as Christians that Jesus died for our wanderings. Not, not just our neat sins, but he died for our apostasy and our rebellion. Because we all rebel. We all wander. So be consoled in that he died for that stuff. Come back. It's those like Esau who don't ever really come back until it's too late, if ever, that are rejected. But, you know, we have to have that balance of he died for everything, and yet it's those who, who forget that and who so entertain these other things that they never go back. Those are the ones that fall away, and by their falling away, show that they were never in in, uh, in the first place. And, and so obtain the grace, be aware of Esau's stew, be consoled, Jesus died for your wanderings. And then uh, finally, um, and I, again, can't, we can't say this enough here, but um, when it comes to apostasy issue and, and wandering, um, the best way to battle it, one of the best ways, is to get in community. Um, it's, it, it, you'll be much less likely to partake of a bowl of stew, uh, apostasy-wise or whatever, uh, when you're in community in the church than you than you would have if you're alone. Uh, so get in community. Because that's where Jesus is. He's in the church. Not just in, not in your prayer closet alone at home. He's where the people of God gather. He's, he's where he's, he's sung to and talked about. Here. And then throughout the week when Hiawatha gathers. So get in community. That, that is God's, pretty much his like main way of, um, of persevering the, the people of God through his grace at work in the local church. So we pray for us and we'll respond. God, thank you for today, uh, for your grace uh, in Genesis 25 and uh, the warnings there, but the graces that are there as well. Um, Father, pray you'd help us to respond this last song and um, just be grateful for um, the fact that we do believe. If people believe in this room, it's a miracle. Like I believe, it's a miracle that I believe. Uh, you've been at work in dead people's hearts to raise them up and to reveal Christ to them as the only remedy and solution. But... Um, God, help us not to think that we're different from Esau or kind of exempt 
from his pattern of living, how he rejected the inheritance of salvation, and to watch our life and our doctrine closely, as the New Testament says. Watch our life and our doctrine very, very closely. Um, when we do that, we save ourselves and we save our hearers, it goes on to say. And uh, so, uh, thank you for moving towards us, for dying for our wanderings. Uh, God, help us to repent during this last song, even, and to believe afresh as we leave here. In Christ's name, amen.